Amen. I'm just going to take a moment and pause and say I love when Justin reads scripture. So good. His voice, man, just, just reverberates in my body. How does that work? I don't know. It's so good. So good. So, hey, we're so glad you guys are here with us uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at Salem. It's just a privilege uh, to be here um, always, every Sunday, to be with you guys, uh, to meet you, shake hands, hear what's going on in your life. I mean, that's, that's post-COVID world. Like, we're just eager and ready to be back together, and it's so, uh, so, so great. So, uh, I want to start this morning. Um, how many of you guys have ever heard of a restaurant called Snooze? Okay, no, awesome. Um, when we used to live in Colorado, um, there was this restaurant called Snooze uh, that opened, um, uh, gosh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. How, I don't know even how long ago it was. And it's, it is, um, boy, as breakfast places goes, it's top notch, in my opinion. And, uh, and it was is not uncommon to go to Snooze. Um, and they didn't probably open until a certain time, hence probably why it's called Snooze, because you could sleep in and then go for breakfast. I guess I just, just now made that connection. Um, <laughs> never said I was that smart. Um, but um, and, uh, but uh, it was like not uncommon to wait 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half to get into this place. Really, really good. They had a breakfast pot pie. Oh, man. Uh, I'm not a pancake person, but they had these uh, Swedish um, like styled like uh, sweet potato pancakes. Oh, man. So good. And I remember the first time I went, I loved it so much, I couldn't wait to get back the second time. And so we went, uh, and I was meeting, I was supposed to be meeting somebody in line, I didn't want to, I was supposed to get there early to save my place in line. Um, but here's, here's the story. As I'm walking down in downtown Boulder on this, on this, this route, this path, this road to, to snooze, um, I noticed that there's this congregation of people uh, who um, seem to be avoiding something uh, on the sidewalk, and as I get closer, I find out what it is, and it's a down-on-his-luck man who is out cold, um, unconscious, laying on the ground with blood pouring out of his body, and people just, they look at him, they give him a glance, and then they just, you know, step to the side and keep going. And as I came to this man, as I saw him laying on the ground, I mean, I was so struck by what was in front of me, and my heart just began to turn and turn and turn, and I had compassion over this man. But inside of my heart, this was a long time ago, and I knew I was supposed to be meeting somebody, uh, and I had all these fears. Like, you know, you see this man on the ground, and, and you go, what if, I, what if I bend down and I help this person, and they wake up and startle and somehow, like, have a knife and do something harmful? Um, what if they have a blood disease that shouldn't be transmitted? Like we have all these precautions that are walking through uh, mentally in our minds in these moments. And, uh, and so I was wrestling internally with what do I do? Do I stop? Do I help? What, in what manner do I help? Or do I pass by and make it to my appointment? Not end of story, but I'll share the end of that later, Right? Um, when you think about that, uh, the idea of compassion seems to be in short supply these days. 
Right? The idea of, of compassion, I think, seems to be in short supply. Um, and when, you, when you're confronted with these moments, you look at these people, whoever it may be, and maybe it's, it's not the same story, but whatever story it is, and we probably all have these moments in life that we see people and we ask this question, who is responsible for this man or this woman and who will love them? Who's going to come along and be the person who loves them? This morning, we're going to be in a familiar passage, um, familiar at least probably to, to many of us, but it's one of the most difficult passages, I think, to, to live out. It's very hard to live out, and it has to do with compassion, and it's fundamental to the series that we're in, in Risking Church, and as we think about how to build community, how do we become a people who are fully known and fully loved, right? There has to be, in some sense, this level of compassion that's being stirred inside of us, but it's, a, it's not only is it a hard to live out passage, it is a radically um, extravagant and yet shocking story uh, that, Jesus, that Jesus is going to, to tell us. And, and, and so here's what I want to do. I want to just start by saying this. I have this little line up here. I think this is helpful. Um, anytime you open up God's word, right, this is God's, this is a, a full story about who God is uh, and, uh, and what he's doing in the world, right? Um, and we, he is the major character. We are the minor characters. And every time we open up this, we are, we are finding and exploring the words of, of God. And, uh, but this is a very important thing. Every time we read this, we remember that the Bible was written for us, right? This is very much intended for you and I in today's world, but it was not written to us, which means that there is an original audience behind each of these texts. And it's, and it's important to understand the original context, the original audiences, in order to understand what the correct interpretation is of God's Word. And this is, this is always baffling to people, um, we sometimes confuse this. There is one interpretation of Scripture. Now, we, we argue, and we get it wrong a lot. We all debate about what the right interpretation is, but there really only is one interpretation, one right interpretation, and we can debate and discuss which ones those are, but there's one. The reality is, though, is unlimited in its, in its application all the time. And so what we want to understand today in this text is, is that we need to understand the radical nature of the text in its context because it was not written to us. And so it's the story of the Good Samaritan. Okay, you guys have probably heard this. The Good Samaritan. Now here's what's so interesting about the, about the Good Samaritan story is because when we think of those words, uh, we, we, we see those two words together and we um, oftentimes or at least maybe it's just me, but we kind of have this warm, fuzzy feeling about the Good Samaritan because we have these positive uh, you know, connotations connected to it. It's a very good thing in our mind. Um, and you even think about like maybe um, Franklin Graham in Samaritan's Purse, right? We think about all the organizations that exist to do good into the world. And so we hear these words and we automatically think positive. But in Jesus' context, right, there's a problem here. Because in Jesus' context, when he talks about Samaritans, it's radically offensive to Jews, and you never see the word Samaritan used with the word good. Because in their mind, that was an oxymoron. It, didn't, it was impossible. It's not the way that the world works. That's not who they are. And that's not who, in, in relationship to who we would be as Jews in that, in that sense. It's radically uh, offensive. So we're going to be um, in Luke chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to, uh, to open it up. 
Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these are the, the first four gospels, um, first four books of the New Testament, they're gospels uh, in nature, which really means they tell the story and the words and the life of Jesus. And so we're in, in the gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 25. And we're going to start here um, with this test, because uh, we're introduced to a character. His, 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 we don't know his name, but we know his profession. He is a lawyer, uh, and a lawyer uh, is Luke's uh, term uh, for, um, for a scribe, okay? And so a scribe in, in Jesus' world was someone who is just um, uber-authoritative, but, but highly skilled in the law, a professional um, person in terms of, of understanding, interpreting the law, um, but also in terms of writing up legal documents. Uh, and so they were consulted frequently on these matters because he is highly skilled. He's a professional, really, uh, in the law. Okay, so here's this lawyer. It says in verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Okay, so we're starting probably the beginning of, of year three of Jesus' ministry, or right around there somewhere, and with each year that passes in Jesus' ministry, um, his confrontation uh, with the religious elites um, begins to escalate, right? And so Jesus is moving towards this ultimately climactic moment in, in his death when they crucify him, right? But as you get into these moments, right, all of these people are, are coming out of the woodworks and they're testing. They're putting Jesus to the test. They're trying to capture Jesus in his words over and over and over because they're not convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, right? And so this is where we enter in, right? This lawyer says he's putting him to the test and he says, teacher, which kind of sounds condescending, right? If you're accusing or teaching somebody, you know, testing somebody, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we don't have time to unpack this, but, but suffice to say, this is, a, this is a very common question in Jesus' time. Uh, for, for them to be talking about this as Pharisees, as scribes, as Sadducees, the whole group of people um, who are considered religious elites would have been talking about this question during Jesus' time. Uh, what, 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 must, what must one do to inherit uh, eternal life? life. Now, interestingly, in today's world, I don't find that that's a question many people are asking, is it? Right? And we don't have, that's, that's like uh, maybe um, important in and of itself, but it's, it's not for us to unpack this morning. But I think that's significant. But in this context, these people are wrestling with this question, what must we do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so what happens here in verse 26? What does Jesus do? It says, and he said to him, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? So he's saying to this, to the scribe, what's your interpretation, right? Now, this is a very significant question. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, Seth, or say they come to me, and they say, Seth, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's my answer going to be? Let me tell you. Boy, thanks for asking. Let me tell you. And then I would tell them everything that I think that they need to know to inherit eternal life. And yet Jesus, in this moment, he doesn't do that, right? He, he totally doesn't do that. In fact, he uses a question, right? This is a prime opportunity for Jesus, we would think, to say, yeah, dude, let me give you the answer, right? Because that's what we would do. But that's not what Jesus does. And in fact, notice, if you were to look through Luke or look through the Gospels, you find how very infrequently Jesus actually gives a direct answer. Why? 
Because he uses questions to redirect back into our hearts because that's what's most important to Jesus. He redirects back into the heart and he uses these questions that get to the heart. And so Jesus wants to find common ground with this person, right? And so what's the common ground? It's the law. They both are interested in the law. And so he asks him about the law, right? What, is, what does the law say and what, what is your interpretation of it, okay? So here's what he says in verse 27. And, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So as far as answers go, is that a good answer? Yes, it's spot on. It's a great answer. It's such, it's really, 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 really such a good answer. And what he's doing is he's referencing back into the book of Deuteronomy where this great command is given, and it says, right, hear, O Israel. This is called the Shema in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, all of your might, is what he says, right? This is, that, was the, that was the thing, right? In fact, this is, this is such an important thing, all three of these things. This is how God defines love, right? All all of your heart, all of your soul, in all of your might. This is how God defines love. It's not one of those, it's all of them. And that's the love. And it's rooted in this chesed love, um, which is really this unfailing, steadfast, never give up, will never run out type of love. That's the love in which we are called to love God because it's the same love in which he loves us. And so if you're a Jew in that day, it's, it's very important. They want to be so intentional about loving God as best as they can. What they would do is that they would take those verses and they would package them into a box, this little tiny box called a phylactery. Uh, and then they would bind it to their wrist or they'd bind it across their chest or they would strap it to their head so that Everywhere they walked and in everything that they did, they're thinking about what? Loving God with all of my being. In fact, here's a picture uh, of this. This is from when we were uh, in Israel. This is a young man who is just, uh, just at the, the foot of the Wailing Wall um, against the Western Wall of, of uh, the Temple Mount, which is now no longer uh, under Jewish control. It's a, it's a Muslim site. Um, but here's this young man, and you can see his hat kind of is tipped backwards because it makes room for this thing in the front, this tiny little box that he has strapped to his head. And this is a phylactery, and it's their way of saying that everywhere I go, I want to be constantly thinking about how I love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my might. And so when the, when the lawyer answers this question, he's spot on, and it's almost too good of an answer. And we know that the lawyer is out to what? He's out to test Jesus. Right? And so it's like, it's like this lawyer, he knows what Jesus is going to say. So he's, he thinks that he's playing his cards right. I'm going to trap Jesus. I'm going to back him into a corner. I'm going to make him say something that he'll regret. And it's in that moment where he's like, I'm going to say, aha, I got you. I've, I've got you in the place where I want you, right? Where he's going to say something wrong or where he's going to regret it. So what does Jesus say? Verse 29. 
Here's what Jesus, or excuse me, verse, um, not verse 29, verse 28. He says, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Notice how Jesus uses his words here for life-giving words, right? This is a man who's, who's out to test him and to accuse him and to trap him. And what does he do? He encourages him. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But there's more to it than this because Jesus has these special, <laughs> this special knowledge, right? He knows what's going on in the hearts and minds of people. And so as he looks at this person, he knows that there is something going on. There's something deeper going on inside of this guy. And this guy, this lawyer, comes to test Jesus. But what Jesus is going to do is that even though this guy thinks that he's got all of his cards, he's playing it right, Jesus is like, man, I've got you right where I want you. You think you have me, but really, I have you. And all he has to do is wait for it. All he has to do is just is to let this little, this little thing settle because in this guy's heart, something has got to be turning. He's got more questions that he needs answers to. And so you say, wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Verse 29. But he, wait for it, desiring, wait for it, to what? To justify, up oh, there it is, to justify himself. This is what he wants to know. He's got a question that he needs answers to. Desiring to justify himself, he said, excuse me, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He's referencing all the way back into the book of Leviticus, where this is like the second thing that, that attaches right in with love the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And this question, who is my neighbor, uh, in that context, in the Jewish context, rabbis would have also been debating this. Because when people look, when the rabbis uh, would have talked about Leviticus 19, there's two primary interpretations. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, some people would say, that means you love your own people. You love your fellow Jews. You love those who look like, smell like, talk like, act like, think like you do, who have the same skin tone as you do. And there were others who said, no, that's not right. It's much broader. It's much bigger. And so when he asked this question, what is he doing? He's saying, Jesus, which side are you on? This has been a year of sides. Do you think if Jesus lived in this world today, do you, how many times do you think that people would have come and tried to trap him? Which side are you on? Right? Which side are you on? And Jesus is so brilliant in this. But by the way, but don't miss this because this is something you, you can't miss. It's so easy to overlook this, but I don't want to I don't want to miss this. Right? This guy, this lawyer is a scribe. Scribes, as a professional interpreter of the law, are supposed to have answers to the law, right? He's supposed to have answers. And this is the irony in this story, right? This is a this is a man who is seeking answers from the very person that he's accusing. Do you get that? 
There's something internally off and wrong in this guy's heart, right? It's, it's the brokenness of the human heart. We don't hold all of the answers to life's deepest, biggest, hardest questions inside of ourselves. We need an external source. We need God to be able to speak into the things that we do not know. There are things that we, are, that we do know, but there's a lot of things that we don't. And this man is showing his own brokenness. I'm accusing you, and yet I deeply want you to give me the answer because I don't have it. I don't have the answer. And so when he says this question, and when he asks this question, who is my neighbor, what is he really asking? He's asking, who am I supposed to love? Right? That's the real question here in this text. That's the real question. Who am I supposed to to love, right? Is that my neighbor? Am I supposed to love that person? Is that my neighbor? Am I supposed to love them? Is that my neighbor? Am I supposed to love them? Because you and I, we have this tendency. This is just part of the human nature. We have this tendency uh, to love the people that dress like us and look like us and all those sorts of things. And so it's a very relevant question because we need to know who is our neighbor so we can know who are the people that we're supposed to love. Who are the people that we are supposed to love? Because if in our dream world, we would narrow it down to such a small, select number of people that A, makes it easy, but also makes it attainable, right? We would narrow it down. And so when he asks this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus is like, oh man, let me tell you a story. And it's a radical story. It is extravagant and good, it's hard, it's challenging, but it is a good story. Let me tell you this story. Verse 30, Jesus replied, remember this is the question, who's my neighbor, right? Jesus replied. He doesn't give him an answer, he tells him a story, right? I love this, this is the way Jesus works. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Wait, hold, time out, pause. Is this the answer to my question? Just answer the question. No, let me tell you. There was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay? And so here's what happens. I'm going to just pause there, uh, pause there for a second. Okay? So what happens is that Jesus uh, transports us down to a specific Road. And so if we come over here uh, to our map, it's likely that Jesus was somewhere um, up here uh, at the time, okay? So um, if you have, um, you have the Galilee right here, you have Samaria, and you have Judea. And so Jesus, you know, in this, in this day and time, what they would have done is that they would have, in order to get down to Jerusalem, which Jerusalem is about right here, okay, right about here, and Jericho is right about here, these two cities that Jesus references. And so in order to get to Jerusalem, what they would do is that they would come here and they would cross over the Jordan River. And then they would come south all the way over here and they cross back over the Jordan River to this town of Jericho. And the reason why they do this is two reasons. One is because this is just way easier of a route. Right? Anything over here is going to be incredibly mountainous and very hard and difficult and add time and all that stuff. So it's, it's easier. But it's really, it's an excuse on their end to bypass this. It's to bypass the Samaritans because they hated 
the Samaritans, they did not like them at all for a whole host of reasons. And so they would come over here and they would come to this little town, right, of, of Jericho. And this is where Jesus transports our story, is this man who's traveling between Jericho and Jerusalem. And it's about 17 miles in its length. Um, and it's actually the, the most difficult part of this journey. So all of this is easier, but they do this and they risk this journey at the end. It's a hard journey um, because why? It's not because it's 17 miles long. It's a hard journey because it actually goes from about 825 feet below sea level right here up to about 2,500 feet. So that's the difference about 3,400 feet or so that you're climbing in elevation, right? You're climbing through this, through this pass. And it's a mountain pass um, nonetheless. And what Jesus does is he transports the story to this very spot. And he does this because in this road, this little place, um, the, the um, the name for the road has to do with the word blood because it has this long historical, um, this history uh, of violence on this road. And so that's where Jesus transports us in, uh, in the story, right? And what happens to this man, okay, as you look at, at the end of this verse in verse 30, right? He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what happens? Is everything okay? No, it says that he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So this is the story. This is the story that Jesus is weaving to explain the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? So this is a man who is robbed, so he has no money, right? He's stripped, so he has no clothes. Uh, he's, he's beaten, so he has no health. And they've departed, so he's abandoned, which means that he has what? No help. Zero. I want you just to take a moment and process this and just think, like, what if that was me? Imagine me in this scenario. Imagine that. Right? How would you feel? What is Jesus really doing here? Do you see the picture that Jesus is creating? This is the man who desperately is broken and needs help. And so the story has to continue. But as you're listening to Jesus tell the story, you're asking the question, how is Jesus going to resolve this story? What is he going to do, right? What's going to happen? So verse 31, it says, now by chance, a priest was going down the road. Now, if you're the lawyer and you hear a name of another religious elite person, guess what you're going to think? Oh, story solved. This is going to work out. This is going to be great. This is the way that Jesus is going to resolve the story, right? And so it's this priest, and he's walking down the road, and it says, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, the text doesn't tell us why. There's no motives given here. You can speculate all you want about why he did what he did, whether he had a snooze party to get to, you know, or if he had an appointment, or if he was going to the temple, it doesn't matter. The text doesn't tell us what his motive is. It just says that he passed by to the other side. Now, when you think of road, what do you think of? You probably think of the roads that you came in on on your way here. 
these big two-lane things with, with concrete and pavement or asphalt and, and everything's laid out nice and neatly. You know which side to walk on, to drive on, all those types of things. But guess what? That's not the Jericho path. That's not the Jericho path. Check out this picture. This is the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. This in front is, is Steve, who is, our, who is our, one of our, kind of our guides and hosts and who's a great friend of mine. What do you see on the left? More road? No, cliff going up. What do you see on the right? Cliff down. <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> it's not a big road. To give you just a, a better understanding of the height of this, check out this picture. You see that person all the way up on the top right? This is the sheer drop-off that goes down on the side. It's not a big road. And so here's the deal. When the priest comes and sees this man, does he see him 45 feet away on the other side of the road? No, he sees him right here. And so in order to go around him, you're either going to have to climb up on the rocks, risk of sliding down, or like, like scale the other side on, on, the, on the downside. And so you're either going around him precariously and carefully, or you're doing this. Stepping right over him. Do you see what's happening here? You see, the word in the Greek for going to the opposite side doesn't just also mean going like around or opposite. It just means that in some sense that he is opposed. So when the priest sees this, he says, I am opposed to this. My actions are opposed to whatever it is that you need. And so I'm going to step over you and I'm going to move on. That's the road, right? First character, that's the priest. Who's the next character? What happens next, right? Verse 32, it says, So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side, right? Same thing, a Levite. A Levite is, uh, is a guy who um, is born of, uh, of the tribe of Levi, but is not according to Aaron's royal, like priesthood uh, type of a thing. And so he would have had important tasks in the temple, but, but not as important as the priest. So he's still an important person, and yet he comes to this, and he seems to take a longer look, and yet as he takes a longer look, he still chooses to be opposed. Step over, move on, right? Now, I want to tell you this. this you, maybe the story is very familiar to you, but let me tell you something that's probably not familiar to you, is that in this context, as Jesus is talking to a lawyer, how many times now has this person been passed by? Twice. In Jewish law, this is very significant because the lawyer would have known that by stating two times, two separate occasions in which this man is passed by by a religious elite, it's an official act of condemnation according to Jewish law. And he would have known this. And so he's listening to Jesus tell this story. That's what is happening in this moment. See, he knows that it's wrong, not just ethically, but also morally, right? And he would have known that. So Jesus is building his case. What's he going to do next, right? We're still asking this question, who's my neighbor? There's no solution yet. So who's going to love this man? Enter into the story, the Samaritan, the very person, by the way, that they would have traveled around 
to get to this point. The very person that they traveled around to get to this point becomes the hero of the story, and he's the last person that the lawyer would ever, ever expect or anticipate being the resolution to the climax of the story, is the Samaritan. Enter in the Samaritan, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion passion, a word that is used to describe him that is not used to describe the other two. Samaritan is not a religious elite. He's not a church person, right? And yet he is filled with compassion. Check out this slide. This is a, it's a weird thing just because I think it's it maybe a little bit helpful. This is the word splankidzomai, um, which means this, to properly, improperly, it means to be moved as to one's bowels, or hence to be moved with compassion, because in that time, compassion was understood to be rooted in the seat of your emotions was rooted in your guts or in your bowels. So all of your love, all of your pity, all of your compassion was the sense in which, and you get this, you ever feel this, when it feels like you're, you're just like turning inside, and you're stirred with compassion, That's what's happening in this moment, right? He is stirred with compassion, right? This is a godly trait that's being acted out in this person, right? What is he doing? He's gravitating to the brokenness of this man. He's moving towards the brokenness of this man. So what does he do? Verse 34, does he pass him by? No. It says he went to him bound up his wounds. So there's these six things, right? He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, right? That's the, the first two things, right? And so binding up the wounds of a person probably means tearing off your own clothes and wrapping them around. What's the next thing he does? The third thing, he pours on oil and wine. So oil would have soothed all of his brokenness, all of the, the beatings, those areas, and the wine would have disinfected his cuts, Right? So he does that. What else does he do? He puts him on his own animal, which means that in all likelihood that he's now going to walk the rest of the way. Right? What happens if this, this starts, this happens at like mile one of your journey. You've got 16 miles still to go. It means you're walking 16 miles instead of riding. What's the next thing? It says he brought him to an inn, and the last thing is that he took care of him. Here's what's so Incredible about this. He brings him to an inn. What, what, what might we have done in normal life? We drop him off. We say, good luck. I hope you get better. This man stays with him overnight, personally cares for the man in all of his brokenness, in all of his needs. He cares for this man. And not only that, on top of that, what he does is that he goes to the innkeeper and he gives him two denarii, which is two days worth of wages. So my question would be, how much money do you make in two days? Would you give that away? Because then what he does is on top of that is that he leaves his denarii credit card (laughs) with the innkeeper. It says, whatever you need to pay, I will pay it. That's the extravagant nature of this story, right? It's a wealthy man who uses his wealth to to extravagantly love on this man. And so then we see the, uh, what we understand about this man is that he sees the need, he immerses himself in it, right? He contends for his good, and then he restores the man. And we begin to get a glimpse and a picture of the gospel in this moment. And so as we begin, as we wrap this up, what happens in verse 36? What does Jesus, how does Jesus end this story, right? This is the end of the story. 
He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man answered, guys, he's been backed into a corner. He has no other words. He can't say it. He doesn't even know what to do. And he says, I really, I suppose, the one who showed him mercy. Guys, can I tell you, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan because it's so radical and it's so offensive to him, but it's the only answer because he knows that the priest and the Levite didn't do that. And so here's the deal. As we end the story, as we end the story, we begin to see why, why compassion is so important because when we think about the gospel, it starts with his compassion for us, right? It stirred him to come and die. And so we are grateful for him. We love him for that. But what Jesus does is that he links this idea of loving God and loving others. And so I think this is true. And hear this. This is hard. But when I am not actively loving someone else, I am not actively loving God. The two cannot be separated. See, we like to think that I cannot love that person and still love God. It's not the way it works. If you're not loving someone that God has called you to love, you're not loving God. And so that's why this question of who is my neighbor is so incredibly important. Because if I'm not loving my neighbor, then I'm not loving God. And guess what? Jesus defines a neighbor as anyone who has a need. And it's significant to know that Jesus uses a priest and a Levite. Why? Because they were the religious elite. They were the churchgoers. They were the people, right? And we know the Bible. I know the Bible. And yet, I also know that just because I know Deuteronomy 6.5, I shall love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And if I carry it in a phylactery on my head, if I carry it everywhere I go, it oftentimes doesn't stop me from doing this. Right? That's the start. But there's compassion and action that go along with it. Right? Like Jesus asks that we gravitate towards the brokenness in each other. And as offensive as it is, Jesus hits at our heart ethically and morally. Because if I'm not actively loving others, then I'm not loving God. And I would love to tell you that at that story in Boulder, when I saw him, that I stopped or that I called or did something to help. But the reality is, is that I didn't. And to this day, I see his image burned into my brain. And it hurts me and it grieves me that I did not love my neighbor. Guys, loving my neighbor starts right here in the church, that we gravitate to the brokenness in each other and we bind it up, we heal each other. And it feels like a risk, but that's what love is. That's what love is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. And as we, as we end our service, as we're going to go into uh, this final song of worship, and we know that you are able to do uh, things, Lord, would you stir in our hearts a sense of compassion uh, for each other, that you would be building in us a love and a pity, that we would move towards people in brokenness, and that we wouldn't be like the priest or the Levite uh, who said, I am opposed to this. I'm opposed to brokenness. I'm opposed to, to bending down and, and binding up the wounds of the hurt 
hurting. And so, Lord, would we, would we each find ourselves drawn to each other in new ways as we continue to, to build community coming out of COVID, that we, would, that we would risk this idea of being fully known so that we can be fully loved. And so, Lord, stir in us compassion. In your name we pray. Amen.